This morning we celebrate the second Sunday of Advent. On the church calendar, it might be the first Sunday of Advent, but we're celebrating the second Sunday because of the way that Christmas falls this year. And as we celebrate the second Sunday of Advent today, we're celebrating the theme of hope. You've heard it in the readings that the Hillensbecks shared with us. Uh, And the, the theme of hope is one that that prompts praise in our hearts and in our minds. It's one that prompts us to worship God. And the title of the message this morning is Hope for God's Children. The text is 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. Six short verses for us to look at this morning. But what I want us to see this morning as we approach the text is I want us to see that when we abide in Christ we can look to the future with confidence. When Christians walk with Christ, we can have confidence in the future, in what God is doing and bringing about in our lives. We can trust in God's goodness, and we can trust that God is the one who even sovereignly is in control and orchestrates things for our good and for His glory. And so this morning, our response to His Word should be that we would desire to walk righteously before Him and that we would live in such a way that we eagerly await Christ's return. Advent helps us to look at what Christ has done. He has come, right? Adventus, He he came, but also that He is returning. He is coming again. I'm rusty. I forgot that I need to blow those out. So we we remember that Christ came, but that he is also coming again. And so our response this morning, prayerfully, to God's word would be that we would learn to walk righteously before him in the present, in our everyday lives, and that we would eagerly await Christ's return, that we would be like watchmen waiting, expecting, anticipating that Christ is coming again because he said he will return. And so this morning, as we look at this text, we see hope for God's children. You know, we live in a world of incentives. In fact, it's commonly known that One of the best ways to influence behavior is through offering incentives, right? I mean, there are big incentive programs and companies and uh, you name it, there's incentives for it. We even employ incentives in in, uh, pre-K and kindergarten classes, right? Stickers are, are commonly used in order to elicit good behavior from children. From a worldly perspective, though, we might understand incentives in four different categories. One, financial. Secondly, moral. Third, coercive. And fourth, natural. Financial incentives are ones that we're probably most familiar with. Moral incentives, incentives to do the right thing uh, so that we get personal or even communal approval. And then coercive incentives might be uh, viewed negatively. Physical force would be used to threaten someone or to threaten a person's family in order to force them to act in a certain way. Maybe it's, maybe it's blackmail to force somebody to, to act in a certain way. It's a coercive incentive. Or then we have natural incentives, which really appeal to the emotions, fear, anger, pain, joy, and so on. In a Michigan State University study, 90, 97% of the faculty members and staff 
who bet $40 that they could stay with a six-month exercise program were successful. But only 19% of the non-betting group stayed with their six-month program. The tip they offered at the end was consider incentives when you want to change behavior. But you see, in our passage this morning, the Apostle John, he gives us kind of a fifth category for incentives. And I think that fifth category he gives us is eternal incentive. In essence, he's, he's saying that being born again is not about becoming a morally better person. Instead, being born again is about being transformed and made new through relationship with Jesus. Being born again is not about becoming just a morally better person. It's about a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. So look with me in chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and follow along as I read. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want to draw our attention first to verses 28 and 29 where we see incentives for righteousness. Incentives for righteousness. First, in verse 29, focus your attention there. We see that John says that we are born of God. Look at verse 29. He says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Well, how is being born of God an incentive? There's an assertion I want to give you. The the one born of God practices righteousness. The one born of God practices righteousness. That means living rightly. To practice, it's the verb do. The one who loves God, born of God, does righteousness. That is, lives rightly. And that living rightly, it's defined by God in his word. It's not defined merely by human ideals of what is right and what is wrong. It's not some arbitrary thing, in a sense. Living rightly, righteously, It's defined by God's word. And so this is the assertion, the one born of God practices righteousness. In fact, that's what he says in verse 29. The one who practices righteousness has been born of him. And in fact, John is talking about a spiritual rebirth, birth, being born again. This is one of his favorite metaphors to use. He uses it throughout the rest of the epistle of 1 John, but he also uses it in the gospel of John. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus has come and asked him a question. And Jesus' response to him was, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. This is a reality for those who would enter the kingdom of God. They must be born again. This is a reality for those who have a relationship with God. They must be born again. 
There is a right way to live before God and a wrong way to live before God. And the first step to living rightly, correctly, righteously before God is that we would be born again. So he says, the one who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John's saying the grounds for living rightly before God begins when a person is spiritually born of God. In other words, if a person isn't spiritually born of God, then that person can't live righteously before God. And the righteous life of the Christian is proof that he or she is actually a child of God. The reason for this is based on the righteousness of Christ. He says, if, which means since, since you know that he is righteous, you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Says that in verse 29. So this means the ability to live righteously before God in the world has been given to those who are born of God. Spiritual rebirth, then, isn't conditioned on a person's ability to live righteously. In other words, you and I cannot be morally good enough to earn salvation, right? We saw that even in Galatians. Instead, righteous conduct is a consequence or a result of being born again. You see, something happens in a person when we're born again. It changes us. Our affections begin to change. We begin to do things differently, see the world differently. This is because Christ within us, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within the believer. So when a person is born again, they're empowered through relationship with God to live differently. Every one of us in here this morning who have confessed Christ and been born again, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to live differently. You've been equipped by God to live in a way that's otherworldly. So the first incentive is that we are born of God. But the second incentive for righteous living is that Christ came and he's coming again. We back up just one verse to verse 28. And in verse 28, we find the command, the key to living righteously is to what? What does he say in verse 28? This is the audience participation portion abide right abide this is the command it's the imperative here's what he's saying you must do here's the key to living righteously abide in him abide in who abide in christ the ascendant and then the then the then the incentive for living righteously is christ's second coming he's already spoken of christ's first coming his first advent That's the the incarnation, the birth, the the appearing of Christ our Savior. It was in the opening verses of verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning. This is what Wes preached last week. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That which was invisible became visible in the person of Christ. And he took on human form. That was the first advent. And what John is saying is that since Christ came, we can be certain that he's coming again. We can be certain that he's returning. In fact, he, he, he uses two words to speak of the reality of Christ's second coming. The first word that he uses is appears. You see it in verse 28? When he appears 
It's the Greek word which translates to the English word epiphany. This is the word epiphany. And it means a suddenness or an unexpectedness of his arrival. Jesus will come again in glorious, visible splendor. We don't know when he'll come, but we know for certain that he will come. Just as sure as he came the first time, he will come again. So there's a sense of urgent expectation that is to accompany the Christian life, your life, my life. There is a sense of urgency and wanting desiring for Christ to return. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. There is this word epiphany. Christ is coming again. His appearance will be visible, a visible reality, and it will be glorious. And then there's the word coming there in verse 28 at the end of the verse, so that we will not have shame at his coming. It's, it's the Greek word that I know you've heard before, parousia, parousia. And it's a word that's com- that was commonly used in concert with the arrival of, of a king or a ruler or a dignitary. It was when he would go to visit his kingdom. And this word carries a different connotation. It carries a connotation of, of pomp and circumstance of splendor and and of dignity. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, this is how Jesus describes his coming. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It will be splendid, royal. There will be none who stand against him. And John is exhorting Christians to live confidently and longingly for the return of Christ. Notice what he says. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back at his coming. You know, the two responses that we then might see at the second coming of Christ, one is confidence. Church, this is the the response that you and I as believers ought to have, confidence. Speaking of, of the one who's watchful and ready, the one who's bold in approaching God even in prayer. The other one is shame, which speaks most likely of the one who'll experience rejection at the judgment of Christ. You see, the doctrine of Christ's second coming has practical implications for the way that we live our day-to-day lives. If I know Jesus' coming is imminent, how should I transact my business today? If I know his coming could occur at any moment, what kind of husband and father should I be? How will I conduct myself during my leisure time, at the ball game, at the office, in the church and a hundred other places, if at any moment the trumpet may sound announcing his appearing. Is it possible? Is it possible to stuff our sins away, sweep them under the rug? It's not possible. It's not possible to hide our sin from the all-seeing eyes of Jesus at his second coming. And so, 
John says the antidote to this is to abide in Christ. Abide in him. The biblical promise of the return of Christ then is one of the the best motives for holy living. We can be sure that he is coming again. Have you ever had guests show up at your house unannounced at the most inopportune time? They ring your doorbell and when you open the door, surprise, they're there. You can't be rude and just leave them standing outside, so you invite them in. But as they come in, you begin, you begin thinking, man, my house is a wreck. Then you see the kids run through the room, and you notice that the kids have food all over their faces. Their clothes are dirty because they've been outside playing. And you, are, you and your spouse are less than presentable because you're just taking it easy that day and getting about the day slowly. You begin apologizing for the mess as you move and clean up the laundry, clean it off the sofa and put it back into the clothes basket. You'll you'll fold it later. You kick the toys into one corner of the room so that as they kind of walk through the maze of the living room and sit down, you're able to sit and visit for a moment. You know, it's times like these when we're so unprepared for company that we're embarrassed. We kind of want to shrink back and wish that maybe we hadn't answered the door. Well, in a, in a much greater way, when the doorbell of Christ's return rings, will it be the inopportune time in our lives causing us to want to shrink back because we're unprepared to greet the king? Or will we be confident because we're abiding in him? See, the one who abides in him practices righteousness because... We've been born of God. We've been equipped to live righteously. To abide in Christ then is the way that we live confidently before God in expectation of Christ's second coming. And this is only possible because of Christ's first coming. We have hope for the second coming of Christ because he came once before, right? Look at chapter 3, verse 5, just a couple of verses down. Look at what it says. You know that he appeared to do what? To take away sins. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Skip to the second part. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, this is what Christ accomplished in the first appearance. Destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to take away sins. You know, this means that Christ, our substitute, Christ, our redeemer, Christ, our victor, has made it possible for us to live in right relationship with God and have continuous fellowship with God. Righteousness and holiness ought to be the pursuit of every believer as we live ready for Christ's return. This is what John is getting at in verses 28 and 29. Then as we transition into chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we see hope for today, tomorrow, and eternity. Hope for today, tomorrow, and eternity. Notice how verse 1 begins. Look at verse 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. John wants us to take note of what he's about to say. He's talking about the love of God. He begins with see, behold, look, take note, pause for a moment. Let this sink in. 
What kind of love has the Father given to us? I want to give you three assertions from verses 1 through 3 as we wrap up this morning to see this kind of love that the Father has given to us. First, in verse 1, note that we are God's children. We are God's children. All those who have been born of God, we are God's children, brought into the family of God. J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. John loves to use family imagery. And in verse 28, he says, little children. You see that in verse 28? And now, little children. And then in verse 1, he says, children of God. And then in verse 2, he says, God's children. There's a special thing about being born into God's family. You know, a child's birth is a special time for families. Families gather at the hospital. Parents gather around, grandparents, siblings, aunts, uncles. They all come for a visit. They gather around this new baby, this new bundle of joy. And they talk about how he or she bears the family likeness. They say, oh, he's got your eyes. She's got her mama's nose. He's bald just like his daddy was, right? She's, that's what they said about me. Then they, they say, oh, she's, she's got a smile like, like her mama. You know, this is in some way what John's communicating here. The reason why the, world, why the world does not know us, he says, is that it did not know him. There is this resemblance between the children of God and the Father. And that comes through the person and the work of Christ. So how did we gain entrance? And how do we gain entrance into God's family? Well, the answer is the love of God. Look at what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This word, what kind of, it's one word in the Greek text. It It only occurs six times in the New Testament, and it's filled with the language of astonishment and excitement and wonder. What kind of love is this? In fact, it's the words that the disciples used when Jesus calmed the sea, when they were in the boat, and they said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is an astonishing kind of love. It's an overwhelming love kind of love it's a mysterious kind of love I think what John is communicating here is that God's love is is too deep to measure it's unfathomable unrelenting incomprehensible its span is too wide and its its height is incalculable it's a gift that reaches the unreachable and and calls us out of desperate darkness with a piercing light that's so efficacious that we dare not turn from it. Its beauty is greater than a lifetime of sunsets, and God's love, it, 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 it's brighter than it outshines the sun. 
There's nowhere that it cannot reach, and it's more powerful than the rolling seas or the highest waterfall. It's purer than the untouched, snow-capped mountains and more majestic than the beauty of its landscape. It's irrefutable, gracious, and merciful. And it's of greater sacrifice than we could ever comprehend. And God's love was manifested to us through Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. It's death-defying, victory-laden, and an impenetrable fortress for all who enter into it. It's secure, and it's enduring, and it's unchanging. This is the kind of love that God has lavished upon us who are called his children. This is the unbelievable love of God. That's why he says, what manner of love is this? What kind of love is this? Church, no matter what problems we face in this life, we have a great hope. We have this great hope that we are children of God. And whether or not the world recognizes our special status with the creator of heaven and earth, we need not be concerned, for we have our heavenly Father's ear, and we are his children. Need I remind you of the great anthem of Romans 8, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What kind of love is this? It's a sacrificial love. It's one that nothing can separate us from. It's one that's enduring. And it's one that gave all for our redemption. You see, the hope that we have is not only that Christ came, he died for our sin, he paid the penalty. He rose from the grave, and he is coming back. He is returning to take us to be with him for eternity. This is the hope of Advent. The second assertion, we are being conformed into the image of Christ in verse 2. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. Look at what he says. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Kind of puzzling and perplexing. Though what we will be is a mystery, here's what we do know. We know that now we are God's children. And we know that when Christ appears at the great and glorious second coming, we will be like him. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Or he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, the mystery is great, but, but our hope is, our hope in Christ is greater still. What a glorious transaction it's going to be. So now as we live this life, let us be content to live righteously for God's glory. 
See, God is at work in every one of us, in every one of his children. He is working to conform us to the image of Christ until that day when we shall be like him. It says in verse 2, when we shall see him as he is. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher, he said it well when he wrote, my knowledge of life is my knowledge of life that is small the eye of faith is dim but tis enough that Christ knows all and I shall be like him my encouragement to us church is that Christian don't give up God's not done with you yet God still has important work for you to do and he's still shaping and molding us for his glory and he wants to work in our lives, through us, in the world. This is how God desires to work. The third, third assertion I want to leave you with this morning is that we should be people who live pure lives. We should be people who live pure lives. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. While John tells us of our future hope in Christ, he reminds us of this. If we're to be like Christ in heaven, then we must live for Christ now. If we're to be like Christ in heaven, we must live for Christ now. Everyone who has this hope, he says, purifies himself as he is pure. You know, this hope isn't a maybe it will happen or maybe it won't like the uncertainty of the weather this hope that John speaks of it's a hope of certainty John's hope the Christian's hope is grounded in the second coming of Christ and just as sure as Christ came in the incarnation the first advent so he is coming again and it's based on this fact that our lives are to be holy in conduct and character this is what he's saying doesn't mean that we can purify ourselves apart from the work of Christ but it means that we work together surrendering our will to the will of God and this is abiding in Christ you see so he says now little children abide in him and abiding in him breeds confidence in the life of the believer you see, our greatest incentive for living holy lives isn't a set of rules. You have to be moral enough or good enough or do this and this and this. No, our greatest incentive for living holy lives is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is the internal incentive that John is pointing us to. He's not concerned with behavior modification. He's concerned with life transformation. And life transformation begins when we are born of God and we realize that the love of God has adopted us as children and been poured out upon us. We have hope because God has lavished his love upon us. We have hope because he is coming again, to take us to be with him. And while we don't yet know what we will be, we know whose we are, children of God. And we know that he is taking us to be with him for eternity in 
glory. So let me ask you this morning. Do you know the love of God through Christ as your Savior? Do you know the love of God through Christ as your Savior? If you don't this morning, I would love to tell you more about what it means and how you can know the love of God through Christ as your Savior. I would love to tell you more about the transforming work that God does in the life of his people whenever we are born again. And what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. This remains true today. So have you been born of God? Have you been born again? If not, you can. Christian, are you living with this hope? Are you living with this expectancy and this urgency, desiring to walk rightly with God so that when Christ returns, we will not shrink back, but we will be ready to greet the King? Is this how we're living? I pray that we are. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we continue to think upon your word, I pray that you would direct our thoughts, that you would grip our heart, that you would help us to really think upon the incredible love that you have lavished upon us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of the great hope of Christ's return so that we live with urgency as we live righteously before you. I pray, God, that you would strengthen us by your spirit to live righteously, to submit our wills daily to your will. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to walk in a way and that you would work through us to walk in a way that others would look to us and they would be drawn to you because of the life that we're living for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.